Ask not what your country can do for you. There's a last time I'm going to be in the lead. The giant was a part. Subpoena all your little mouse, so won't you go away? One ringy-dingy. Hand off to Griffin, cracks the middle, gets the five. Touchdown, Ohio State. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. I'm interested to know, Gracie, who's your choice? Need you ask, George. Time now for Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie. And thank you for tuning in to episode 10 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. I'm pretty sure Louis Armstrong was my dad's favorite trumpet player. The song you hear open and close each episode was his favorite tune and is being played by Satchmo, which was my dad's favorite version. Louis is probably the most influential musician, band leader, singer, recording artist, and jazz ambassador there is. So let's hear some real jazz history in volume 10, Louis Armstrong, the jazz masterpiece, number one. Now, this is a collection from the Smithsonian. It's called The Greatest Jazz Recordings of All Time. It's made up of several separate box sets of four records each. In this box, Louis Armstrong and Roy Eldridge, jazz masterpieces, two records are by Armstrong. We'll listen to Roy Eldridge at another time in another episode. We'll be playing selections from the first disc, The Smithsonian provided a very in-depth booklet to go along with the collection, so I'll read liner notes provided by each of the songs that I have selected. West End Blues is perhaps the first sustained masterpiece in the annals of recorded jazz. This is the new Hot Five, and in pianist Earl Hines, we have one of Louis' very few equals of the day. The deeply felt vocal in which Louis employs his scat technique, a way of making wordless musical sounds, finds him in a duet with Jimmy Strong's clarinet. His paraphrase of King Oliver's melody is a model of sobriety, and his use of a long-held note in the last chorus is thrilling. But it is the opening trumpet cadenza that fully displays Louis' instrumental brilliance. In the words of music historian and composer Gunther Schuller, the clarion call of West End Blues served notice that jazz had the capacity to compete with the highest order of previously known musical expression. So, let's start with one of the most recognizable lines in jazz music.
West End Blues, recorded June 28, 1928. It was written by Joe King Oliver, who had created the first recording of that song only earlier that month. All right, why did I pick this album for this episode? The albums my dad collected from the Smithsonian Institute series, The Greatest Jazz Collections of All Time, actually started in my possession. But it was early in my radio career and sometime out of work threatened me to be able to even pay for these albums. Uh, yes, even my in my early 20s, I was collecting historic jazz recordings. My dad offered to continue to pay for the collection as long as he could keep it in his possession. And of course, I got to borrow them anytime I wanted. And I often did. In fact, I found many of my albums in his collection when I started going through what we found in the house after he died. You could also find plenty of his albums in my collection, but, but I digress. The Smithsonian albums represented a joint love of jazz music between my father and I that continued the rest of his life. And we'll get to enjoy plenty more of that specific part of the collection in future episodes. And now we go back to the earliest recording on this album. Alone at Last is one of the rarest of all Louis recordings. It dates from near the end of his Fletcher-Henderson period and was probably recorded by a mixture of personnel from the Henderson Band and that old Sam and that of Sam Lannon, two bands which shared the stand at the Roseland Ballroom. In any event, the Southern Serenader pseudonym was used by Lannon and the instrumentation is somewhat larger than Henderson's of the time. 
Both Louis and Don Redman confirmed their presence upon listening years later, but neither could recall the precise circumstances or the other participants. Louis is unmistakably himself in the fine, perky solo surrounded by arranged sections that bear a heavy period stamp, which is to say that all but Louis's work was dated, showing how far ahead of the pack he was. at last. Recorded August 7th, 1925. Written by Ted Fiorito and Gus Kahn. 
time to talk about the album selection for this episode. It's Louis Armstrong and Roy Elridge Jazz Masterpieces on the Franklin Mint Record Society label. The album number that I am playing is FM Jazz 001. It's from that series that I told you about, The Greatest Jazz Recordings of All Time, and from the Institute of Jazz Studies Official Archive Collection. Now, they eventually released 12 of these box sets. My dad and Ended up with six of them. In each of the boxes, there are four vinyl records. It's a really nice box set. And yes, each of the records is a red vinyl. Real cool appearance. I think it might have been more of a gimmick for the Smithsonian Institute. Now, we'll be listening to the first album, which is Sides A and B, the first of two albums by Louis Armstrong. We'll listen to the other Armstrong sides and the Roy Eldridge sides in later episodes. This collection was released in 1982. Uh, let's uh, take a look at some liner notes. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Like I said, this is a, an extremely extensive booklet uh, with a lot of information in here. I am going to read the first couple of paragraphs, though. Though he was never billed as the king of jazz, Louis Armstrong has the only legitimate claim to that title. Without him, there would, of course, have been a music called jazz, but how it might have developed is anybody's guess, for he was the key creator of its working language. More than a decade after his death and more than a half a century after his influence first made itself felt via recordings, there is still not a musician playing in the jazz tradition who doesn't make daily use, consciously or unconsciously, of something invented by Louis Armstrong. Those who knew or remember Louis only as the world-famous genial entertainer, whose face, smile, and gravelly voice were instantly recognizable, may find it hard to believe that he had once been a revolutionary artist, one of those radical visionaries who changed the face of art in the 20th century. To be sure, there was no ideology behind what he did. His was a non-violent revolution, but it was a revolution nonetheless, and one with tremendous consequences. To put it as compactly as possible, Louis made jazz a vehicle for freedom of expression, for unfettered flights of musical imagination. He, more than anyone else, even more than his gifted contemporary Sidney Bechet, changed jazz from a collective to an individual music. Nor does his influence end with jazz. The way American popular singers phrase from Bing Crosby to the latest wonder stems from Louis' liberating approach to melody, rhythm, and tone production. The way American instrumentalists, including symphony brass players, have learned to expand the range and expressive power of all manner of instruments ultimately stems from Louis' unprecedented flexibility as a trumpeter. He was the creator of a new kind of virtuosity that was anything but orthodox, and the entire phenomenon of swing, the verb, not the noun, the concept, not the style, while not of his invention, was crystallized in his rhythmic genius and transmitted through him to generations of players and singers. Nice little tidbit there. Shows you exactly how important Louis Armstrong is to not only jazz, but to music history and even to America itself. Let's talk about the value 
of the album right now. Uh, I use the uh, the website Discogs to determine what the value is out in the market, um, also what my dad's value is, and that is the website, the app that I use to catalog all of this. Um, the uh, lowest value on Discogs for this album, I found $10, the highest was $20, and the median was $12.50. eBay had it for $24, and Amazon, of course, Coming in a little high at $99.99 for a copy of one of these. My dad's album, the the entire collection, the entire Smithsonian collection is still in really, really good condition. Can't quite call it near mint or mint according to how Discog uses those terms. Both the record and the box set still in great set. Even though we both played these albums a lot, we were both taking better care of our collections by then. Like I said, these came out, uh, started out in the early 1980s. And I'll say this box set is worth $12. Okay, let's get back to smiling. If I can grab my glasses. When You're Smiling was recorded on the same day as Basin Street Blues, actually a tune we will not be hearing on this episode, but another very famous Louis Armstrong tune. Uh, The same day, both vocal and non-vocal versions of this tune, it is the latter and much rarer version that we hear here, and in place of the vocal, we get a muted half-chorus from Louis that is a little gem of construction. The band, the one Louis took with him from Chicago, is heavily into Lombardo and is a bit lugubrious, but when Louis takes over, open horn now for his majestic final chorus, playing the melody an octave higher than written, all is forgiven. This was one of his earliest hits in the vocal version, to be sure.
When You're Smiling, recorded September 11th, 1929, written by Larry Shea, Mark Fisher, and Joe Goodwin. And that song is just one of the many Louis Armstrong songs that I included in the soundtrack for a video I did for my parents' 50th anniversary. Time now to learn a little bit about this episode's artist. We'll be featuring Louis many times, so we'll get to explore his life more than others throughout the course of this podcast. Louis Armstrong was born in New Orleans, Louisiana on August 4th, 1901. He was raised by his mother, Man, in a neighborhood so dangerous it was called the Battlefield. He only had a fifth grade education, dropping out of school early to go to work. An early job working for the Jewish Karnofsky family allowed Armstrong to make enough money to purchase his first cornet. On New Year's Eve 1912, he was arrested and sent to the Colored Waifs home for boys. There, under the tutelage of Peter Davis, he learned how to properly play the cornet, eventually becoming the leader of the Waifs home brass band. Released from the Waifs home in 1914, Armstrong set his sights on becoming a professional musician. Mentored by the city's top cornetist, Joe King Oliver, Armstrong soon became one of the most in-demand cornetists in town, eventually working steadily on Mississippi riverboats. In 1922, King Oliver sent for Armstrong to join his band in Chicago. Armstrong and Oliver became the talk of the town with their intricate two cornet breaks and started making records together in 1923. By that point, Armstrong began dating the pianist in the band, Lillian Hardin. In 1924, Armstrong married, married Hardin, who urged Armstrong to leave Oliver and try to make it on his own. A year in New York with Fletcher Henderson, and his orchestra proved unsatisfying, so Armstrong returned to Chicago in 1925 and began making records under his own name for the first time. The records by Louis Armstrong and his five and later Hot Seven are the most influential in jazz. Armstrong's improvised solos transform jazz from an ensemble-based music into a soloist's art, while his expressive vocals incorporated innovative bursts of scat singing and an underlying swing feel. By the end of the decade, the popularity of the Hot Fives and Sevens was enough to send Armstrong back to New York, where he appeared in the popular Broadway review, Hot Chocolates. He soon began touring and never really stopped until his death, in 1971. I want to thank the Louis Armstrong House for that biomaterial. Now, there's so much more to Armstrong's life than just those few paragraphs can can uh, embolden. Uh, we'll explore how instrumental he really was, yes, pun intended, in the history of recorded music in later episodes that we do feature Satchmel. Now let's talk about a song that became the background track for a movie of the same name starring Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin. All of Me shows what Louis could do with a standard pop song. Like so many he chose to record in this period, it became a mainstay of the jazz repertory. His muted exposition of the tune is masterly, and it hits hints at the relaxed phraseology later employed by Lester Young. The emotional vocal is yet another kind of transformation of the song, and Louis caps things off with some soaring open horn. The tenor soloist is Al Washington. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Recorded January 27th, 1932. Written by Gerald Marks and Seymour Simons. Now time for this episode's interesting side note. What is Louis Armstrong's date of birth? Armstrong often stated that he was born on July 4th, 1900. Although he died in 1971, it was not until the mid-1980s that his true birth date of August 4, 1901 was discovered by Tad Jones while researching baptismal records. At least three other biographies treat the July 4th birth date as a myth. However, July 4th is when Satchmo celebrated his birthday. Sometimes he wrote it down as a different year. When he signed his draft card, he put 1900, maybe wanting to seem older as some young men did back then because they wanted to fight. He used 1901 when applying for a Social Security card while working for Paramount Pictures in 1939, so by that time he didn't have to seem older. According to one researcher I found, there are only three official documents with Louis's birthday on them. The baptismal certificate says it's August 4th, 1901. Draft registration card had Louis filling out July 4th, 1900. And the social security application Louis put in July 4th, 1901. Now this was a time and a place where record keeping wasn't done how we do it now. It was really done haphazardly. And according to LouisArmstrongHouse.org, in the mid-1980s, Armstrong expert Tad Jones discovered in the Sacred Heart of Jesus Church in New Orleans a baptismal certificate that indicates compellingly that Louis was actually born on August 4, 1901. The information was first widely reported in the book Satchmo by Gary Giddens. The Louis Armstrong musician usually celebrates on both July 4th and August 4th. Why not? 
His talent was too immense to keep it contained to just one day of celebration. All right, time for some baking. Butter and Eggman introduces the first edition of the Armstrong Hot Five. The piece was featured in the stage show at the Sunset Cafe, where Louis and singer May Alex performed it with a larger group. Miss Alex is no Bessie Smith, but acts only as a foil for Louis, while whose half-sung, half-spoken vocal chorus conveys the rhythmic impulse of even his speech. The main event, however, is his beautifully structured cornet solo. It is one of the earliest fully sustained course-length jazz solos on record. In its inventiveness and rhythmic freedom, so different from its plotting surroundings, it forecasts the future.
Butter and Eggman, recorded on November 26, 1926, and written by Percy Venable. We're going to sneak in another tune before we wrap things up for this episode. Symphonic Raps, unlike the small group pieces, gives us an inkling of what Louis played in the late 1920s in Chicago on a day-to-day basis. This was the band he worked with at the Savoy Ballroom. Hines and Zuddy Singleton are on hand, as is a saxophone trio that seems to owe a bit to Guy Lombardo's Royal Canadians, then a brand new band and one of Louis's favorites. The highlight is Louis's solo, in which he makes effective use of a repeated note pattern in his opening bars. Symphonic Raps, recorded on June 28, 1928, 
written by Burt Stevens. I could listen to Louis Armstrong music all day. One of the very first biographies that I had a chance to read when I really started getting into jazz musicians. The influence he had on generations of musicians is amazing, especially considering his most humble of upbringings. My history of jazz professor made sure we knew all that Louis did for jazz. Music in general, recording techniques, phrasing for both musicians and singers, the list goes on. And of course, we lead right back to the fact that Louis Armstrong was my dad's favorite trumpet player in a collection filled with great trumpet players. So we finish this episode with a song that Colonel Potter sang in an episode of MASH. Yes, I'm a MASH fan, and I'll find parallels to that show anywhere. Chinatown, My Chinatown introduces the band made up mostly of New Orleans musicians, which was the first big unit actually to tour with Louis. It also gives us an example of Louis's unique mixture of entertainment and musical dazzle as he conjures up a mock battle between the saxophones and the trumpet, which he addresses as if it had a life of its own. The four choruses of trumpet that follow the vocal are an example of the virtuoso Armstrong, but also of the storytelling that's so impressed... Roy Elrich. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a little novelty here for you this evening. We'll have a little argument between the saxophone and the trumpet. Of course, these cats just told me they're going to get away. And uh, the little trumpet just said it's going to do the same. Ain't that right, little trumpet? Yes, sir. <laughs> oh, that little devil. <laughs> and, uh, but before we uh, riff, we're going to chirp a few for you this time. So get your chops together, boys. While we mug lightly, slightly, and politely. Chinatown, my Chinatown, where the lights are loud. Oh, my Chinatown. Drifting to and fro. Chinatown, my Chinatown, my Chinatown, my Chinatown. Oh, you rattle, you. Chinatown, my Chinatown. Oh, my Chinatown. Look out there, saxophone. What's the matter with you? Let's go. Look at them cats getting away. Look like they're after me. Look at y'all. But I'm ready, I'm ready, so help me, I'm ready. Look out here.
Chinatown, My Chinatown, recorded on November 3rd, 1931, and written by Jean Schwartz and lyrics by William Jerome. And a great, great solo by Satchmo in there. Thank you very much for tuning into Volume 10, Louis Armstrong, The Jazz Masterpiece Part 1, however you did. If you want more information about this podcast, please head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops for Volume 11, The Sounds of Richard Rogers. Go with the flow, my friends. (laughs) 